0: Hi, this is Stuart Weems and welcome to the Investopoly podcast. My goal is to give you simple, easy to understand strategies, insights and tips to help you master the game of building wealth. And in this episode, I'd like to talk about the question, can property values continue to rise at the same rate that they have over the last two or three decades? Can property values keep going up? Uh, Will they keep going up? And it's a common question I get asked and certainly a common concern uh, I would say, for most economists and they 'd like to debate this uh, this question, and also you know for people as well, because a lot of people that that haven 't yet invested in the property market ask themselves, "Have I missed the boat?" although that probably seems like the case in most asset classes, you know when we look at share markets and and these sorts of things, rarely is there a time when we look at the market and go, "Wow, what tremendous value' Uh, very little risk. Uh, Let's jump in. Uh, Typically what we see is markets are fully priced so they seem very risky. Now's not a good time to invest but everyone's really confident. Uh, The reverse or the alternate to that is markets are lower but there's a lot of uncertainty, a lot of risk. So you know in both situations uh, new uh, first-time investors find it a bit difficult to sort of jump in um, but I'd like to sort of uh, sort of step back and look at the sort of longer term trend of property and ask ourselves what happened over the last uh, 30 or 40 years, say since the early 1980s or so forth. Uh, will it repeat itself? And uh, the idea for this podcast slash blog uh, came to me uh, when I saw a really interesting graphic uh, put together that showed the um, real change in house prices uh, in capital cities. Um, And it's sort of a visualisation, so it starts at 1970 and goes through uh, to sort of current times. Uh, And of course, you can find that um, on the blog, on the website, but kind of interesting to look at how different different capital cities have have changed over that period of time. And there's certainly been uh, a tremendous amount of growth it's um. In fact, it's it's possible that you know anyone that bought a uh, a property in a capital city in say the eighties, uh, it's likely almost everyone has done well. You know, it's, it'd be hard not to do well over that period of time. Now, of course, uh, better quality assets perform better, of course, uh, but notwithstanding that. Uh, you know, it wouldn't have been difficult to pick up eight to ten percent capital growth, even if you had a very average quality asset over that period of time. So, what I wanted to do is have a look at what are the value or what are the value growth drivers. What what, what has created, you know, the property growth over the last uh, two to three, two to three or four decades. Now, of course, I'm looking at, at a macro level. If we look at sort of median house prices in Melbourne and Sydney and Brisbane and so forth. Uh, so I'm making a very generalist uh, assessment of the property market. Um, but I guess in a, you know, as a, as the saying goes, in a rising tide, all ships rise. So you just need to be on the water to make the gain. Um, the the big question is, will it be a rising tide over the next three to four decades as it has over the last three to four decades well, to answer that question, I think we need to understand what's driven the growth. Why has it been a rising tide over the last three or four decades? And I've discussed um, some of the points in the, in the blog, obviously on the website, you know, but the first one is population growth. Certainly uh, Australia's immigration policy, uh, that is to, to take on uh, a higher amount of skilled migrants than, say, other developed economies around the world, our population growth has certainly contributed significantly to our economic growth but also it creates demand for housing and um, and also it can create or make sure that the market uh, doesn't go into an over oversupply situation so if we're building a lot of houses uh, that's okay we've got the population growth to absorb that extra um, increase in supply so population growth i think has has um, probably indirectly contributed towards um, uh, price growth, mainly because of increased economic activity, uh, therefore higher incomes, uh, investments and so forth, uh, but al- also because of we-, we need more houses to, to house a growing population. Uh, the next one is, uh, the next factor I think that's really played a big role in the last few decades is increase uh, to, to um, uh, borrowing capacity. Uh, So uh, Australian banks, uh, because of competition, uh, so really in the 80s, there was very little competition. In the early 90s, um, we saw Aussie home loans begin uh, as a mortgage manager to take on the big banks. Uh, And at that stage, the margins, uh, home loan margins were 3 or 4%. Today, they're about 2% or or, uh, they've, they've steadied at around 2%. So the amount of profit the banks are making off home loans compared to the 1980s is halved. Uh, and then you've got the competition aspect. So uh, in the 80s, 70s, you'd have to go along to your bank and almost beg for money, uh, demonstrate that you know, you're in a good career and um, you're in a good financial position. Uh, whereas the tables were turned uh, certainly in the 1990s, but certainly early 2000s, where banks started aggressively marketing to their customers, uh, for additional borrowings, and then they loosened up credit as well. Uh, so uh, you know, if you compared sort of borrowing capacity in the early two thousands um, compared to nineteen eighty or nineteen seventy, uh, banks are probably lending two to three times more uh, to to individual borrowers at that point in time. So the banking industry really changed, and it created a massive flow of uh, capital into the property market. Um, and that had a really bi- that's had a really big impact over the last few decades. Um, increase in household income. You know, in 1970s, it would, tip- it would be typical for one spouse to be working and one spouse to be home with kids, obviously for those that, uh, that have children, um, uh, whereas today it would be very typical that both spouses would be working, albeit maybe one in a part-time capacity, uh, but that has then increased uh, family income, uh, and obviously that family income goes towards or is contributed towards a better home, a larger home in a better area uh, and so forth. Uh, the next uh, point is that people are buying their home later, their first home later in life. I mean, they, they're doing everything a little bit later in life compared to the, say, the 70s. So we're marrying later, um, we're really focusing on our career and increasing our earning capacity in the main uh, and probably most people don't turn their mind to buying their first home until their late 20s, early 30s. Uh, by which time they're probably in a stronger financial position uh, than uh, people in the early 20s that bought a home in the 70s, for example. So and also the idea of or, or what uh, first home buyers are looking for in their first property, Um, is a little bit more ambitious than what it would have been in the 70s as well. You know, they don't necessarily want to compromise on location. They want to be close to entertainment, work, amenities, these sorts of things. Uh, So uh, they're willing to work a little bit harder, save a bit more and borrow more, more importantly, uh, to get a better asset. All of this fuels property price growth, of course. Um, the internet's uh, had a big impact. Uh, you know, I can jump online. Well, I mean, look at my blog, for example. I write over, say, 50,000 words a year. That's more than a book a year of sort of free information that I'm sharing after 20 years of experience that anyone can access and read at any time. Now, that just wasn't – I started the business in 2002. That just really wasn't – I was only starting to become available, uh, but there certainly wasn't anywhere near close the amount of information Uh, that is available today. So educating ourselves about what's possible, how do we build wealth through property, Um, how do we maximise our borrowing capacity, Uh, is it prudent to go out and borrow to invest, all these sorts of things uh, are at our fingertips literally uh, at the moment or today uh, compared to 30 years ago it was just impossible to get that information Uh, and uh, you know you really had to hunt it out and it wasn't available to everyone. So that sort of dissemination of information is a great thing. I mean, it's really good that people become more educated. Uh, but of course, it's going to mean that there's more investors, property investors in the market today, uh, looking to make money out of property than they were, than there were three or, or four decades ago. Uh, and lastly, we can't ignore the fact that there's been improvements. So it's not just land value r- uh, rising, but obviously people over the last few decades are spending more on the actual dwelling, on the construction of the dwelling on the property. So, you know, more bedrooms, bigger living areas, uh, um, uh, theatre rooms, you know, um, uh, family rooms, these sorts of things uh, are, are all on a lot of people's shopping lists and you only have to wa- uh, drive through sort of a new build area and I think what what the, the thing that stands out to me is the houses are so big, firstly, uh, and they tend to take up almost all of the block. Uh, in fact, if you can... I was talking to a um, an electrician, and they said, you know, in some new build areas, they can just walk on the roof and and take a step to the next door neighbour uh, if they need to look at something. It's that simple because uh, you know almost uh, the the houses are almost attached. I mean, they de- they are they are detached, but there is not much uh, room between two. And also, the the um, uh, the backyards are a lot smaller as well. So, more bigger better, you know, in terms of dwelling, that all adds to. Property price growth. Uh, whereas, again, if you look at the nineteen seventies, it's a small two. You, it, it, it wouldn't be uncommon to find a two-bedroom house, you know, that would that was very small um, uh, floor print uh, that would sm- sit uh, smack bang in the middle of the block. Um, uh, well, that just doesn't happen today. Uh, so, I think they're all the things that have contributed towards you know the property price growth that last three or four decades, and uniquely here, I'm not talking about just investment-grade property. In fact, I'm talking about property at a very macro level, which I don't often do, but it's really important to sort of point out, you know, if we look at median house price in Melbourne, Sydney, Brisbane, and so forth, uh, my commentary really applies to that sort of situation. Now, of course, if we start to apply our mind to thinking, will these, this property price growth persist? Uh, well, then it's important to understand, well, what we've just discussed, what's contributed towards that price growth, uh, and then ask ourselves, will that be repeated? Uh, and uh, that'll help us form a view about what uh, price growth might look like in the future. Uh, well, the first one is population growth. And I think population growth will be, you know, over the next three or four decades, either equal to or higher than the last three or four decades, Um Now, of course, the negative health and economic impacts caused by COVID have been devastating. I really don't seek to obviously diminish uh, their impact. However, from a um, pure economic perspective, if we look at uh, population growth and if we um, start considering uh, the demand for immigration to Australia, uh, I can't help but think that the COVID situation uh, will be probably one of the biggest positive impacts Uh, towards um, making Australia look like uh, probably one of the best destinations to immigrate to. Uh, So if it's been a popular country over the last three or four decades, I think the popularity will uh, skyrocket. Uh, Of course, New Zealand's done very well as well, but the the thing that's working against New Zealand is job opportunities. uh, In terms of, you know, particularly if you're working for really large corporates in management and so forth, That's what we want is higher income earners. They're they're going to have a greater impact on the property market uh, and uh, those those individuals are probably going to be attracted to Australia for those job opportunities compared to New Zealand. Um, So assuming the government um, maintains their immigration policy, that is skilled migration in the areas that are most needed uh, to to stimulate the economy, uh, then I think our population growth uh, won't uh, reduce. Of course it will reduce in the... Um, Very short-term because of COVID and and border closures and those sorts of things. But again, when we're looking at property, we're very much taking a long-term view. Uh, So the short-term considerations really aren't that that important. Uh, The second thing in terms of borrowing capacity, um, if we have a look at sort of history of borrowing capacity, if you like, you know, it was very low in the 1970s and early 80s. Um, uh, Then there was more competition, um, banking deregulation, mortgage managers like Aussie Home Loans and so forth got into the market. So really borrowing capacity um, increased significantly uh, in the 1990s and 2000s and then really probably since uh, the GFC, so 2008, 2009, uh, borrowing capacity has been trending lower. Uh, and as, we, as I've spoken about um, uh, continually over the last few years, that there's been a very tight credit arena. Of course, uh, I've also spoken about the government um, uh, suggesting that credit uh, laws will change in March this year. Uh, so there might be a little bit of loosening, but I don't think we're going to get anywhere near back to sort of pre-GFC levels. Uh, and nor should we, by the way, the, 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 the prudential standards were way too loose. Um, but also I don't think we're going to see the same loosening or increase of supply of money that we saw over the last two or three decades. Uh, So um, I think borrowing capacity uh, at a sort of macro level is probably not going to change very much. Um, That is, it's not going to loosen, but it's probably not going to contract too much. But in terms of the massive increase in supply of borrowing, say, if we look compared to the 1970s, 80s, compared to the 2000s, for example, uh, we're not going to see the same change over the next three or four decades. So that's not going to repeat itself. Um, uh, So, uh, you know, that'll have a negative impact in terms of property price growth. Uh, That is, it won't um, reduce uh, property prices, but it also won't stimulate them as much as it has over the previous decades. Um, Also, income is going to constrain borrowing capacity as well. I mean, it's very unlikely, at least in the short term or foreseeable future, that rises in income um, are probably going to be equal to or less than inflation. So that means no real changes in income. Uh, So incomes will be flat or even falling. Uh, And, you know, once uh, both spouses go to work in some form, uh, you know, that's not going to change. There's no sort of uplift uh, or scope to uplift uh, family income like there had been, again, if we compared to the 70s, 80s and 2000s. Uh, and uh, childcare is a real problem. Uh, childcare costs uh, uh, sometimes uh, much higher than um, private school fees. And certainly everyone balks at uh, private school fees in terms of how expensive they are. But really, childcare is a major problem as well uh, that needs to be addressed. So, I think incomes—we're uh, not going to have the same change in incomes as we have over the last three or four decades, and of course that doesn't—that um, doesn't bode well uh, for property price growth. Um, Congestion is going to get worse, uh, of course, you know, as as density builds, um, and I think uh, most economists and demographers would agree that Australia's underinvested in uh, infrastructure, including roads and public transport. So that that means that our capital cities, uh, and uh, certainly around the CBD, are getting uh, more and more congested, uh, and so travel times uh, are increased. uh, And therefore, if you want to reduce your travel time, you've got to live close to the city. Uh, And that's been true over the last couple of decades, uh, but it's going to become more and more true. Of course, there is a permanent trend of working from home. I agree, but I think in the main most people are going to adopt a hybrid model, so a few days in the office and a few days at home. But of course, more importantly, there there are other things that attract us uh, to the to a CBD or, or capital city location, uh, including you know proximity, family and friends, uh, schools, uh, recreation and entertainment opportunities, those sorts of things. So it's not just a case of uh, considering work from home and all of a sudden we can go and have a, tea, a tree or or, or um, see change. Uh, some people of course can and will, um, but in the main it's not really going to change. So I think this uh, the congestion will only exacerbate the uh, difference in demand for inner ring blue chip suburbs compared to outer suburbs. So the demand is unbalanced now, so there's a lot higher demand in a ring, uh, and I think that, that'll just continue to exacerbate. So the gap between the demand for, for outlying areas will, will just only get worse. Uh, also, uh, economic inequality will get worse, unfortunately. You know, the gap between the rich and the poor only gets wider each year, and it's certainly an observable trend in most developed economies. Uh, but unfortunately, I think COVID's going to exacerbate it, um, because clearly, if we look at the, um, uh, the economics, uh, the, the lockdowns have clearly impacted lower-income earners, uh, whereas m- most recent data um, shows that the top 40% of income earners have not been impacted at all. In fact, their income is higher today than it was uh, pre-COVID. So unfortunately, because COVID is going to really mean that the rich are going to get richer and the poor are going to get poorer – um, and so, if this uh, trend continues, and I think it almost certainly will, there's going to be a significant cohort of high income earners that are willing and able to pay more for sought after investment grade property um, locations. So, therefore, the value gap between blue chip locations and outer suburbs, I think, will widen as well. Um, so, all of this suggests, I think, uh, this analysis suggests um, and commentary suggests that. Uh, probably won't be a rising tide uh, over the next three or four decades, or at least it's less likely than more likely in my view. Um, You know, there's been some really unique uh, factors that really contributed to the property market, particularly since the 1980s. So through the 80s, 90s and and early 2000s, um, you know, really benefited from some significant uh, changes, uh, which I've just uh, obviously discussed. Uh, But lots of those won't really uh, repeat themselves again. Uh, of course, the the only exception there is population growth. Uh, that's likely to have a, a a widespread impact or a universal impact across the whole property market. Um, but then I think because of uh, um, the inequality, economic inequality, you know, the impact of um, COVID, congestion, and these sorts of things, uh, I, I think that there'll be a, a widening gap between you know, inner ring, ring, inner city blue chip property uh, compared to sort of outlying property for the reasons that I've obviously uh, talked about. So what does this mean for investors? Well, essentially it means that I think asset selection is going to become the critical aspect in terms of generating uh, above average investment returns uh, from investing in property. As I said at the beginning of the podcast, um, uh, just generally, you could have bought almost any property in any capital city in the 1980s, and to date, you would have uh, done incredibly well. You would have built a, re- a pretty significant amount of capital uh, value in that asset, um, and so the um, temptation is to say, "Well, all property does well," uh, and I think I think that to some degree is correct historically, uh, but I don't think it will be repeated. Uh, so I think we need to start investing in a way that we, uh, that is based on the assumption that there won't be a rising tide over the next two or three decades that, and acknowledging that there has been a rising tide over the last two, three, four decades. Uh, and if we adopt that assumption, uh, then that means that we must pick the right asset, the correct asset, In the correct location and so forth, all the investment grade things that I've been talking about a lot through my podcasts. Uh, And uh, if we adopt that assumption, you know, that there won't be a rising tide, and if it turns out to be incorrect, well, what's the downside? You know, you're still going to achieve a better than average return because. You've invested in a better than average property, but it's a great way to um, reduce your risk. And if you are concerned about can property prices, you know, mathematically keep increasing at the same rate, uh, even just based on incomes. Of course, the answer is uh, no. Mathematically, they cannot. Uh, and uh, does your investment strategy then prepare yourself and your assets for that occurrence that there won't be a rising tide, which is what you you know, what you're better off sort of asking yourself. Uh, so as always, uh, you'll find the, um, the, the chart uh, on the blog on the website. Uh, so I'd really encourage you to have a look at that. Uh, and also more information, of course, in the blog. Uh, as I keep saying, if you really enjoy the podcast, please share it. Please rate it. Uh, leave a, a five-star rating wherever you li- listen to your podcasts. Uh, it helps us sort of spread the word and um, uh, makes the podcast uh, rank a little bit higher so at least i can get uh, exposure potential exposure to more more listeners which which would be um, uh, very appreciative uh, from my behalf uh, and so until next week bye for now